My guest on the pod today is the longtime voice of Eastern Washington University. Untitled one. As a part of the FBS, the football championship subdivision, which is now 1AA. Larry Weir of the Eastern Washington Eagles is my guest this week. If you like this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and review the Blind Broadcaster Podcast on Apple Pod or your favorite podcasting directory and platform. If you have suggestions or ideas for people you'd like to have on the show, shoot me an email at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter at king underscore tsb. And if you're lucky enough to find me on Facebook, use the email address at the top of the intro. Here's my interview with the voice of Eastern Washington University, Larry Weir, on the Blind Broadcaster Podcast, which is a Believe Podcast Network production. Voice of Eastern Washington University is episode 18 of this therapeutic edition of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast, hosted by me. Luther King, your narrator and broadcaster. <clears throat> and the boys of the Eastern Washington Eagles, Larry Weir, joins me. And you've been the boys of Eastern Washington how long? 40 plus years now, I guess? Oh, no, just 29. 29. I'm not okay. quite that old, Luther. I'm, I'm getting up there, but I'm not quite, uh, quite that old. I started in 1991 was my first year. Oh, wow. Well, we'll get to that in a second, but let's backtrack to a very young an ambitious Larry Wade. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what you, were your, well, were there any opportunities for broadcasting and when did you know that's what you wanted to do? Well, I'll, I'll give you kind of the long version of the, uh, of the whole thing. It's um, podcast. We can go as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> I, I grew up on a farm in a small town uh, in the Southeastern part of Washington state. Um, and so I was out there in the middle of nowhere. I'm an only child, so no brothers, no sisters. Same here, uh, don't feel bad. <laughs> yeah, no kids anywhere close to me. Probably three miles would have been the, the nearest kid or pretty close to it. And so I had to entertain myself. And so dad was a sports fan, and, and I started watching and listening to games with him. And pretty soon I started doing, you know, if I was going outside to, you know, hit a wiffle ball or, or throw a football to myself or shoot baskets in our shop or whatever it happened to be. Um, I was doing the play by play in my head, uh, while we were doing that. And, and the plan was for me to be a lawyer at the, when I was growing up, but a lawyer, huh? a lawyer, but I didn't wow. want to go to school for seven years after high school. <laughs> I didn't like school that much. And so then I started thinking about, well, what else could you do? And, and the broadcasting kind of uh, took over there. And so I got a lucky break in April of 1980. So I guess you're right. I have been doing this for 40 years, but I've been at Eastern for 29. In April of 1980, in fact, probably pretty close to this time in 1980, um, my mom's brother, my uncle in Toppenish, Washington, um, uh, he lived across the street from the guy that owned the radio station in this small town. And they had a tribal basketball tournament. It was a big one, like 14 states. And I don't know how many different tribes were, um, were represented at this thing. And it was oh, wow. one of the biggest in the nation. And so the radio station in Toppenish had signed on to broadcast the semifinals on Friday night. And then the consolation game between the two losers on Saturday night, and then the championship game as well. And, and uh, uh, 
the guy that owned the station didn't have anybody to, to call the game that weekend because his normal guy was out of town at a wedding. And so he was just talking to my uncle about, you know, the problems he was having trying to fill this spot. And my uncle said, well, my nephew wants to get into that. And so the guy that owned the station, well, have him send me a tape. Well, he hasn't ever done a game before. And, and the owner said, well, he's probably going to be better at it than I am. So have him come do the games. And at the end of the four, four games, the two, uh, two nights on the weekend, I stayed with my uncle and, and the guy came across on Sunday morning before I left town and said, how'd you like to come back in the fall and do my football and my, my high school basketball games? And so that's kind of how I got started uh, broadcasting the Native American basketball tournament. So how did you get rosters and how did you keep your own stats? Well, the, the, the roster is especially at that particular thing. I, I, I can't rem- I, I want to say there was a program that was available that had all the rosters for the varying tribes, but those oh, rosters wow. changed, you know, because maybe somebody thought they could come and then they, they decided they couldn't take that because it was a whole week long tournament. I mean, this thing started on Monday or Tuesday and went through the whole week. There were, mm. you know, a bunch of tribes there and a bunch of different teams. So I want to say there was a program there that had everybody's roster, but those rosters didn't end up exactly being correct in the of end. Course. But, but they were really good about, you know, at the, uh, where we were at, which was at Wapato High School, which is right near Toppenish, eight, nine miles away. Um, it was a bigger gym than the Toppenish High Gym, and they needed it because they had about 3,000 people. It was a full house, about 3,000 people watching, you know, these, these championship games and these semifinal games. Uh, I was right by the, the scorer's bench, and so they were really good at making sure that, hey, here's the change, you know, uh, whoever wasn't able to make it, but this guy is filled in or just cross this guy off your list, et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. as far as keeping score in the game, because obviously that was before, you know, computers were used for stats and that kind of thing. Um, I grew up, one of the guys that I listened to was a guy named Bob Robertson who broadcast Washington State University games. Oh, yeah. And so I would listen to Bob, whether it was broadcast a football game or a basketball game or whatever it was, and I would keep score along with him. And so I just used, basically, I was Bob Robertson for this, uh, for these broadcasts, because I just was regurgitating all the games that I heard Bob do. Well, this is how he did it. This is how I imagined what he would do if he was seeing this. And I just kept my score along like I had been keeping along with Bob, tracking fouls and free throws and field goals made. I didn't do field goals missed. I couldn't, that was too much at the time and try to keep track of the game. So I just did it, and I still, 40 years later, do the, the same thing. I still I score my own games for basketball. If I'm doing a high school broadcast, I keep my own stats. I don't do it when I'm doing an Eastern Washington football game, uh, but I still do the same thing that I did when I was listening to Bob, uh, you know, in the, in the 1970s. So <clears throat> after you did those games and you finished up high school, where did your road lead to next? Well, I grew up in the, in the Walla Walla area of southeastern Washington. And so the guy that got me started in Toppenish ended up selling his station in Toppenish. And one of his best friends was part of an ownership group for a station that I grew up listening to in Walla Walla. So I had been, I had started working Yakima, Washington, which is near Toppenish. Uh, doing this is back in the day when a disc jockey was a disc jockey. They would put the disc, the, the, the 45s 
on a uh, turntable and cue it up and, and you actually were playing the music there yourself. And so I was doing the overnight shift at a station in Yakima, Washington and broadcasting high school basketball games because it didn't interfere too much with the, you know, I could sleep from 7 a.m. to 3 or 4 p.m., whatever it was, and then get up and then go do a high school game and then go to work at the station afterwards. So it ended up not being that bad of a shift to do games. But I was doing these basketball games and doing the overnight shift. And so when the guy uh, took over the Walla Walla station as general manager, he said, why don't you come over here and do the same thing for us? And he said, it's time I'll throw in the local community college, Walla Walla Community College football as well. So I was doing community college football now along with high school football and then the, the high school basketball games. And so I did that. And then just over the natural course of time, I, I moved from the overnight shift to the midday shift when whoever did that left and then somebody else left and I got to do something else. And pretty soon I was doing the mornings and as the program director there when I really hadn't been a disc jockey for very long and I didn't really know what I was doing, but I knew more than the other people there. So by, you know, I end up getting the job. And so uh, that's kind of where I went from there. And then when, uh, when that one ended, uh, I moved to uh, another town called Colfax, Washington, um, because that was a, an available job at the time. And it was in a small town and I'd actually played against them growing up in my high school. And from there I met a guy named Paul Sorensen who was running a, a company called Impact Sports. And that's how I ended up doing Spokane Indians baseball in 1989. Uh, and then Eastern Washington Games started in 1991. And your longtime broadcast partner, Paul Swinton, is still with you. Yes. <laughs> and so he was doing, when, when, when I started doing Eastern Games, he was doing the uh, analyst work on football for Bob Robertson with the WSU Games because Paul was a, uh, great. He was an All-American football player at, at Washington State and was selected in the NFL draft uh, and played a couple of years in the NFL. Um, so, yeah, and then when his Cougar gig ended, he ended up coming over with me, I think it was in 2004. And so we've been together on the Eastern broadcast for football since. So <clears throat> basically because of Paul Sorensen, what was the process of going from doing Spokane Indians baseball to getting the Eastern Washington play-by-play job that you still have to this very day. Yeah, so um, it, it was all due to the fact that the guy that preceded me in both jobs was the same guy, and he was pretty good, a guy named Rich Waltz, uh, who ended up, he, he did Florida Marlins TV for a number of years. Um, and so Rich had gotten a minor league job in, I want to say Wichita, Kansas, for the 1989 season, and it happened – pretty late before the season started. I want to say like in March. And so I had left Colfax and was down in Boise, Idaho. And I was supposed to be broadcasting games for the Boise Hawks of the Northwest League, same league that the, the Spokane Indians are in. But in March, the Hawks lost their radio uh, gig. Uh, they the, the station they had an agreement with, I think there was probably some kind of an out clause or whatever it was. And in, anyway, in March, that station decided they weren't going to, to call the games or, or uh, you know, have the games on their air anymore. And mm -hmm. so the general manager came to me and he said, we don't have a radio job now. You're welcome to stick around. I can't pay you anymore. But if we get a station, you'll do our games. And about that time, Rich left to go to Wichita and Paul called me and said, 
you know, any chance that I'd get you to come back to Spokane for these games? And I said, well, as it just happened, <laughs> I don't have my gig in Boise anymore, so yes. And so uh, I, I came back and I, I started doing the Indians games at that point. And then Rich was still coming back. He came back after the baseball season in 89 to do, uh, to do Eastern games. And then again in 1990 to do Eastern games, but something that happened in 91 where he decided not to come back. And so that's when Paul called me again and said, okay, Eastern's open now. You get this if you want it. And so I said, yeah, I'll do that too. So, and then the Indians had ended up taking things in house. Uh, and so uh, I was offered that job to do the Indians as well as their um, Western hockey league team, the Spokane chiefs, but I had never seen a hockey game live. And, and so I turned down the chiefs and it was a good thing uh, because I ended up, I, I would rather have done football and basketball than baseball and hockey, even though baseball is my favorite sport to broadcast. Hockey would be my least favorite. So I decided second and third is better than first and fourth. So when you got the Eastern gig, how did you feel like <clears throat> you were able to get a rapport with the coaches, the staff you were working with, the players you were working with, and how quickly did it take you to get yourself familiar, familiar with the roster of the players you were going to be you know, talking about on the air? The roster was pretty easy. I mean, you can go through and memorize and you, you look at the depth chart and you, you kind of have an idea of who's going to be doing what. The rapport, though, with coaches, administrators, players, et cetera, et cetera, that takes a lot of time to develop. So it was probably, it might even have been year two or year three before I really, you know, where the coaches trust you and can, can understand they can tell you things that, that you're not going to go blab to you know, the next guy that you, you, that you see, it just, it takes time and, and, you know, trust obviously is, is broken down very quickly, but it takes a long time to, to be gained. So um, yeah, I, you know, it took a while to, to build up that trust with the coaches, both football and basketball. I think basketball came a little quicker because there's a smaller traveling party. And so you're with the same people all the time. Whereas in football, there's a lot more people in the traveling party and you're not necessarily with you know everybody at the same time so I think basketball was easier football probably took a little bit longer to to develop that trust what were your feelings when you actually started doing the first game with Eastern Washington I was excited I mean this was the the highest you know minor league baseball I suppose you could argue is is you know maybe because it's professional whereas you know uh, uh this is just division one. I suppose it's not professional, but I thought this was a bigger deal for me uh, than, you know, short season minor league baseball was. So I was very excited. I was very happy when I, uh, you know, when I took over and, you know, Eastern at the time uh, didn't have a, a, you know, much of a fan base and didn't have much of a advertiser base. And so, Usually we were scrambling to try to find a radio station to broadcast on and, and Eastern Washington University is located in the small town of Cheney, which is about 20 miles outside of Spokane. And they don't have a, well, there, I think there is a radio station licensed to Cheney, but they broadcast out of Spokane and are not broadcast, you know, there in, you know, in the, the tower, the, the station itself uh, was not located in Cheney 
it was located closer to Spokane. So at any rate, I guess the, I'm taking a long time to get to the, the, the point that some of the stations that we were on in Spokane didn't have a signal that was strong enough to reach Cheney, the people that were interested in hearing the game. So there was lots of stories of people going up on the hill behind the football stadium and sitting in their cars, those that cared enough about basketball, which wasn't very good at the time, uh, and listening to the game up in their cars in the middle of winter, uh, you know, outside the football stadium. So to get at a high enough point to be able to, to get the signal, and then you, you were listening through static at that point. So I wasn't talking to a lot of people, but the people I was talking to were, were pretty serious about the team, and I think that helped me as far as uh, credibility goes just because I was doing a good job, and, and so the people were – a lot of times those were university employees, and so the office talk was, hey, he's doing a nice job, and so that helped you know, break things down for the coaches a little bit that, okay, this is a guy that may be here for a little while so we can trust him. When could you tell that Eastern Washington was starting to get a foothold and start to create their own niche and say, hey, we're not going to be a stepchild anymore? It took a long time, probably the national championship football season of 2010. It may have happened a little <laughs> bit after the basketball team went to the NCAA tournament in 2004. Uh, but there were, you know, Eastern has, Division One athletics at Eastern Washington University has, and it's probably like this at a lot of schools, but it's never been a popular notion for the faculty. Uh, they've battled this from the time Eastern turned Division One in 1984 to the current day. Um, there are continual calls from the faculty to, uh, you know, to evaluate athletics and, the, you know, is the money that we're spending on athletics worth the time and the effort and, and, and could it be better used to other things? And, and so Eastern has continually had to, to fight that battle and they've had to fight it a lot uh, over the last, you know, 30 years plus. So, I think the national championship football season in 2010 kind of quieted some people down uh, and uh, helped start some of the things that are, are, you know, what has become very endearing for the, for the fans around this area, and that's tailgating. Eastern didn't have an active tailgate until about 2009 or 2010, uh, and, and so it was – you could just drive up in 2008, you could drive up behind the stadium, park behind the stadium, walk in, buy a ticket, and go see the game. Uh, and you were one of about three or 4,000 people in the stadium. So I think the national championship year in 2010, that started the demand uh, that got the faculty off people's backs for a little while. And uh, I think that probably is what really uh, – and, and at that point in time, we had gotten on a, a better, more stronger station in Spokane. So – uh, I think that helped as well. So when did, was the network before Layfield IMG College basically in-house or what were the parameters like when you started to, like when did the network start to become what it was now that you have Layfield IMG College as your partner? What I understand where you're going. Um, so uh, Eastern handled everything. In, uh, Impact Sports ran Eastern's games initially. And then at, at that time, uh, uh, 
uh, Paul Sorensen owned Impact Sports was the name of his company. And, and, it, and at one point in time, he had the Spokane Chiefs, the Spokane Indians. So the, the Chiefs, the, the uh, junior hockey team in Spokane, which is wildly popular. Uh, the Indians, the Northwest League baseball team, which is also very popular. Mm-hmm. He had the rights to Washington State University games, Gonzaga University games, uh, Whitworth College at the time, a Division three school in Spokane and Eastern Washington. And then along the way, Paul acquired uh, rights at Arizona State as well. Uh, but as Learfield and as IMG and as Host Communications and many others became more powerful and more prevalent, uh, Paul just didn't have the financial backing. He didn't have the, um, he just didn't have the wherewithal to continue on. So the WSU uh, broadcast rights got uh, uh, plucked away. The uh, well, I think the first ones to go away were the Chiefs and the Indians. They started things in-house. Uh, they took that over, so he lost those. Then he lost the Arizona State and the WSU. Then around 2000-ish, he lost uh, Gonzaga. And in the end, Eastern Washington and Whitworth just weren't enough to, to keep him going. So uh, he folded up shop, and then Eastern took it over themselves for more than a decade. So I was working directly for the university. Mm-hmm. And then they were dealing with what radio station to, you know, they could partner with and if we had a network and, and all that kind of thing. And then in sometime after the national championship football season, I want to say um, a company called KP Sports came in and they took over the sales arm for Eastern. I still worked for Eastern, but KP Sports came in and sold sponsorship, signage, radio advertising, program advertising, uh, whatever the case may be. So KP Sports came in and did that. And then Learfield, three or four years ago, came in and acquired KP Sports. And so that's kind of the history uh, as far as that goes. So KP Sports is still doing the selling, even though now it's under the Learfield. No, Learfield took it all over there. Oh, so they purchased too. they purchased KP Sports and they took everything over under their umbrella. Oh wow! So they basically bought out KP Sports and now Learfield IMG is basically one big conglomerate. So that takes at least one thing out of your hands. But yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not getting paid by the institution anymore. The basically the only thing that's changed for me is I don't be I'm not paid by the institution anymore. I'm paid by Learfield, and I suppose it's also changed then as far as who I answer to, uh, you know, and now I answer to folks from Learfield rather than uh, the athletics director at, at Eastern Washington. How do you feel like that's changed the broadcast landscape for you and who your crew is and everything else? It really hasn't changed anything for me. We're on the same station. I'm working with the the same analyst in football. I, I, I broadcast basketball solo and I, I, pretty much always have. Uh, I've never really worked with a partner, especially not at Eastern uh, on a regular basis. So the only thing that's really, and basically the the money that I was getting at, at Eastern has just flipped over to, you know, Learfield paying me. And I really haven't started any other duties or very few other duties for Learfield that I wasn't doing already for Eastern. And in fact, in some cases, probably I'm not doing some things for Learfield that I was doing for Eastern, but I'm still being paid to do those things, which I'm really not having to do anymore. So, uh, you know, such a scheduling, you know, where the commercials fall for 
the football and basketball formats. We're using the formats that I created, but I'm not the one having to put the spots in anymore. That's all handled at Learfield. Uh, and so they still have it divided out, you know, in my check to where I'm getting a certain, I don't know why we haven't just folded it all into a game uh, deal, but and maybe outing myself here and maybe somebody from Learfield will hear this and say, wait a minute, why are we paying this clown to do that when we're already having somebody else to, to do the job? But uh, at any rate, there are, there are probably, uh, you know, nothing really has changed uh, in my deal, I guess. For you, how many sports are you actually doing? Just football and basketball, or do they have baseball at Eastern Washington? Or like, nope, no baseball at, at Eastern Washington. It's just for you at Eastern Washington. And how do you like supplement everything else with the high school stuff? Uh, so yes, just football and men's basketball at Eastern. Uh, occasionally, like the, the women's basketball team, uh, played for the Big Sky Tournament Championship a couple of years ago, and so I did that game. So occasionally I'll do some other game. Um, so that's basically that, – that, that is the majority of my income. And so, uh, uh, you know, Paul Sorensen, his name comes back up again. Uh, he is currently working for a company called Vision Marketing, which is a – uh, they, they do golf shows and, and they've done ski th- events and they are, they're basically a marketing firm. And one of the things they do is sell the advertising for the Greater Spokane League high school uh, athletics. And so I also do those football and, and boys bas- and, and, and girls basketball games. We have a package of a game of the week uh, for basketball and one for football. So I do those games when I can uh, when I'm in town. Uh, and not out of town with Eastern Washington. And then basically I just, uh, I, I do freelance work. Uh, our local uh, NBC TV affiliate, KHQ Television, has a digital channel that they call SWX, and they broadcast a couple hundred events uh, throughout the course of the year, whether it's high school football and basketball and sometimes other sports or the community college, the junior college in Spokane, they'll do some of their volleyball or basketball games. They will do uh, the NAIA World Series, which is held in Lewiston, Idaho, which is a couple of hours south of here. Uh, They will do all 18 or 19 games of that tournament. Uh, They broadcast some Eastern Washington University games, but obviously I can't do those. Uh, They broadcast some University of Idaho games. They broadcast a lot of Gonzaga University games. So they do a ton of games from this area, some Spokane Indians minor league games, some of the Spokane Chiefs hockey games. And so if there is an occasion where they need somebody to do a broadcast and either their people are busy or it's something they don't want to do, like auto racing or boxing or something along those lines, they call me up and say, hey, how'd you like to come and do this? So I typically do 10 to 14 events for them over the course of the year as well. Uh, Spokane had on the ESPN radio affiliate here, a local program that went from three to six in the afternoon. Uh, that's gone away as part of the COVID-19 situation. There just isn't the ad- advertising money right now to sustain the program. And so, you know, I would fill in there on that program when I was in town for 
you know, 10 to 15 days out of the year as well. But I'm fortunate in that I can make enough money doing the Eastern games to where I really don't need to do anything more than what I'm doing in order to pay the bills. For you, like, how has technology changed from when you got started in the business to now in 2020? Where do you think technology is going to go? Yeah, well, good question on where the technology is going to go, uh, because I wouldn't have believed that uh, technology has gotten to where it is when I started in, in 1980. So when I was doing these games for mm-hmm. Toppenish High School and, and Wapato High School and, and doing the games of the Tribal Basketball Tournament, um, when we were at home, we used a Marty antenna, a, 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 an antenna that what we would do is uh, uh, we had a, 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 a great big huge box that transmitted our signal and a cable that went to an antenna and then we had the antenna then went to a telephone uh, that was in a coach's office and we would then use take off the 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 mouthpiece on the phone and at the end of the cable were banana clips and we would connect these clips to the little prongs that were inside the mouthpiece of the phone and that's how we would broadcast a game. And so there were a lot of things that could go wrong (laughs) with one of those broadcasts (laughs) and you had no communication with the radio station uh, because there were no cell phones or anything at that time. And so when, if something happened and somebody decided, you know, this isn't right because a lot of times it'd be in a coach's office or something like that. Why is this phone? Why is this doing this? And so they unclip everything and hang the phone up because they weren't aware that something was happening. Well, I wouldn't know that somebody had hung up the phone. And so there was more than one occasion where a state patrolman or a county sheriff or a local police officer, whoever was available to get a hold of, the, our radio station would call whatever law enforcement office they could find <laughs> who would pick up the phone and say, hey, would you go to the, the, you know, the local gym and tell our broadcaster that somebody's hung up the phone, we're off the air. And so the first time that I, the cop came up to me while I'm trying to broadcast a game and said, are you Larry Weir? And I'm trying, well, I'm trying to broadcast a game. You're standing in front of me. I don't know what's going. Yes. Well, you're off the air. Oh, <laughs> and so I'd go and, and figure out what happened and, and reconnect us and away we'd go until somebody else would hang up on us again. So you had that where I started out with, and there was probably 50 or 60 pounds of gear that we would carry around to start with, with the antenna and the cables and the, the big piece of equipment that we'd use to, to plug the microphones into and, and all this stuff. And so now it's come down to a deal which I can carry on an airplane and is probably 10 or 15 pounds. And is uh, you have communication instantly to the radio station and it's not even by phone anymore, it's through ethernet. And we even have a, a thing now where we can go wireless if we need to. So it has changed tremendously over the years. It went from what I was doing to, to being able to install phone lines in, in gyms, but that was expensive. Uh, and, uh, you know, that went to at, at some point to ISDN and now to the Ethernet and, and to, to wireless communication. So... I, I know people that, that do games off the computer, which is how we're doing this. They connect and, and you have a mic that plugs into to a USB port or whatever it is and away you go. So 
there's all sorts of ways to get it done now that, that we didn't have 40 years ago. What was it like trying to just get one phone line at different places and hoping you had a place to plug it in so you could actually get a dial tone back to the station and then try to figure out, you know, how am I going to make sure that I don't, that the phone doesn't get hung up and everything else you could actually do the broadcast without any interruption. Right. That was, uh, you know, that was difficult because the stations didn't want to install a, a phone line in every high school gym that you went to. That took the, the profit margin way down having to install. I don't know what the phone lines were to, to install anymore, but it was something you'd use one time. And so it might cost the station 50 or 75 or $100 or whatever it was. But when you're in the 1980s and you're doing that in eight or nine different gymnasiums, plus the one that you're broadcasting the home games out of, that's a pretty mm -hmm. significant chunk of change uh, to take on over the course of a year. So it was really hard to get, you know, at least at the high school level, to get people to, um, to install phone lines. There were very few gyms that had active phone lines in them, and there's very few gyms today that have, uh, you know, when we go around the Greater Spokane League, we're limited very severely in the amount of, of gyms that we use because a lot of them don't have ethernet uh, there in the gymnasium. So we're, we're fortunate in that most of the football games are played in one stadium here in Spokane. Uh, they host three or four games a week there. Uh, there's one or two games outside this, uh, the main stadium in Spokane, but um, so we can just get away with, with installing one phone line or, or one ethernet jack, I guess now. Uh, there, but it's difficult. So, uh, you know, it, it, the, the vision marketing plan is that we're not going to install ethernet, you know, sites at these other arenas. If they don't have an ethernet that we can use, uh, we just aren't going to do games out of their facility. And so uh, it's always been hard at the high school level, at the college level, it's no big deal because they've always had phone lines, ethernet lines, whatever it is that you need uh, to be able to do games. But it's always been difficult at high school um, to be able to handle that with the expense that comes with installing something in, in multiple gyms. Has that been the most difficult part for you in your career to make sure that everything at least runs smooth or have there been other things that kind of horrified you, but you can sit back and laugh about it now from where you got to start to where you are now? Yeah, you know that was that, that's difficult. That that has always been difficult. The the you know especially when you're kind of on your own, uh, and that's where you're at in the high schools. You're you're on your own because there's no sports information director, no media relations team, you know, to, to help you out. There's no IT people. If something is going wrong at at a college site, if if something is is not correct, there's usually an IT person right there who can help you out and and figure out why something isn't working. But that is a huge stressor when something is not working right, is not connecting, uh, and you're, you know, you're bleeding up to broadcast time and what you would normally be doing to get ready for a broadcast you're not doing because you're uh, having to deal with some kind of a technical issue. So those games are always difficult to do. And then the other thing that's becoming more difficult in this day and age is just the, the general travel between sites because, you know, after 9-11, traveling has gotten more difficult, rightly mm -hmm. so, in some areas. And I think that the traveling is going to get even more difficult now with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Sure. And just getting from 
point A to point B uh, with how we do things. So yes, the phone lines, the ethernet lines, the broadcast transmission has always been a huge stressor, but now the travel I think is going to start to be a big stressor as well for broadcasters, especially those who aren't at the level where they're doing uh, chartered flights. So the Power 5 it probably won't be a big deal because they charter everywhere. Uh, and, and probably uh, at the mid-major to, to upper mid-major levels, they, you know, Mountain West, et cetera. I know Gonzaga, they charter everywhere. There are schools that will charter everywhere that aren't in the Power 5 or the Power 6 for basketball. Uh, but for those of us who go commercially for a lot of uh, sports, uh, whether it's basketball or basketball and football both, or those of us that, that also broadcast baseball, uh, I think travel is going to end up being a major problem, uh, an even bigger problem than it, than it is at, at this current time. Do you think it might drive folks that are in the low levels to basically say, forget planes, if I can you know, find a rental car, I'll just drive instead of fly? Which works in a lot of cases, but especially here in the West, we are so <coughs> separated. Uh, geographically, it's going to be very hard to find a conference that can align just geographically and budgetarily, I guess. I don't know if that's a word or not, but just their budgets align with the travel that's involved. So I'll use the Northwest as, a, as an example. In the Pac-12 conference, you've got six different states represented. So you've got Washington, Oregon, California, uh, Arizona, Utah, and Colorado. Mm -hmm. In the big sky, you've got eight states. You have all those states plus Montana and Idaho. West Coast Conference, you've got four states involved there. Um, you know, the big west is probably the one that's closest to being able to do that geographically, but then they go to Hawaii as well. So the Western Athletics uh, Conference has a ton of states involved. Uh, just off the top of my head, they're going to have Washington, California, Utah, Arizona, Texas, Illinois, and I, I think I'm probably missing somebody else in there as well. So they've got a bunch, of a bunch of states involved. So driving on a lot of this just isn't possible at this point in time. I can't really drive from Spokane to Flagstaff, Arizona easily or to uh, Cedar City, Utah easily or to Greeley, Colorado easily from here. So then you start to look at something that might be geographically possible. And so in the big sky, you've got Montana, Montana State, Idaho, uh, Eastern Washington, that's all very drivable. Portland State would be a difficult drive for Montana State, but would probably still be in Montana's footprint to drive. Uh, Idaho State, Weber State would be a challenge for Portland State, but probably the rest of us could do that. Uh, and then who do you, do you add? You could add Seattle University into that uh, as a travel partner for Portland State. But if Weber State decides they'd be better off teaming with Utah Valley and, and going to the WAC and then going to Dixie State and Southern Utah and Northern Arizona maybe decides that's better with, with Grand Canyon, then the WAC might be something that could be more drivable as well. But who do you put with Utah or with Idaho State there? You could put Utah State or Boise State in, but they are – probably not going to be willing to do that budgetarily, especially. And then just that they're playing FBS level football still as opposed to FCS level. So that might work for all sports other than football, but it's not going to work for football. So there are a lot of things that are going to have to be determined 
Uh, I could see at the low and mid-major level and at the FCS level for football and maybe for some at the FBS level, you know, some sports may go away, whether it's a core sport like a football or a men's basketball or whether it's it probably wouldn't be men's basketball, it'd probably be football. Or if the NCAA drops their minimum sports requirements, it may be a lot of the other men's sports that go away. I, there's just a lot that has to be worked out here. I don't think that we have anything clear on when games may start, whether they can be started with a partial stadium or a full stadium or no fans allowed, you know, travel possibilities being, you know, where, how, where does that land? You know, there's just a lot of questions right now and nobody has answers to them because we're not sure, you know, what's happening just with the pandemic itself. If we can get if we can get the, the, the new uh, sicknesses, if, if those things go under control, if the, if the infection rates drop, then maybe some of the restrictions can be eased in all states. And there's another whole thing is, you know, Utah doesn't have stay-at-home restrictions right now, where California and Oregon and Washington still have stay-at-home restrictions. Arizona's probably going to lift their restrictions soon. So you know, just the competitive think, advantage situation, if you can get started in some states earlier than you can get started in other states, you know, are some states waiting or some schools waiting for other? Yeah, there's just a myriad of things to go over at this point, and I don't think anybody has any clarity, and I'm not sure when we're going to get clarity. And even at the time we get clarity, everything may change, and we have to get more clarity at a different time. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, exactly, because I, mean, I, I was going to ask, like, because I know – I've been seeing a lot of different things on social media. I know South Carolina was opening up this week. I know Georgia was opening partially back up this week. I know here where I live and much of the state of Tennessee is going to be allowed to open some, most of their businesses back up. Now I've heard that there's a possibility that California could open back up on May 15th. But I don't know how that's going to go. So there's a lot of things, whether, you know, this is under control or if they feel like they can get things to what the new normal is going to look like, feel like, and be like, kind of back under control so folks can try to get back to work. Because I know for a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, the only jobs they know have been outside of the home. They really have never had to do jobs in, you know, at home jobs because they're in a catch 22 because yep. there are people that, you know, need income so they can support themselves and support the families. So you're kind of in a catch 22 that you don't, that you want people to be safe, but you're also in a catch 22 because a lot of people want to figure out a way to get back to work. And then you just don't know what the, the virus may do. I mean, we could get this thing where, where uh, everything is slowing down and, and restrictions are lifted and we may go along pretty well for three or four or five months or whatever. And then when you get to regular cold and flu season, when we get to October, November, December, there may be another flare up. Sure. And so, you know, we just, that's <clears throat> part of the, the whole thing is we just don't know. I mean, we may get clarity that works, you know, for well, the start of football season. We don't season, know if it's full clarity. Yeah, there may not that that may change when we get into November if we have more infections or you get 
you know, 50 or 75 or 100,000 people or even 10,000 people in a, in a 10,000 seat football stadium. If, if you do that once and all of a sudden you have an outbreak of sickness, well, that's going to end that in a hurry. So we just don't know at this point in time what's going to happen. And we're not going to know what's until we actually get to that time and when we start trying to do things uh, once again. So it's, it's all going to be very interesting to see what happens. And, and you know, I can, full, I can fully see college football, at least at the Power Five level, starting – at some point this fall, and they could probably operate with no fans if they had to, just because they've got TV money coming in. But at the smaller levels, the FCS level primarily, you don't have the big TV money coming in. So when, you know, does playing in front of an empty football stadium, when does that make sense for an FCS school? So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens here in the, in the weeks to come. So for you, how have you been able to keep yourself like going stir crazy? How have you been able to keep all, you know, keep yourself singing while trying to get all your shows, like your podcast, like the, in the press box podcast and how are you keeping an eye on your brother and that are in the league that you're in? I am very, I'm very fortunate in that uh, I'm an only child and I grew up on that farm. And so I grew up without people for the most part. Uh, you know, even, even if in the summer days, if I'm, you know, I'm, I'm with my mom and my dad is there. If, if times are good, we have a, 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 a hired hand who is, is helping with the farm work in, in times that, that aren't my mother and I are the hired hands for my dad. Uh, but we'd all be doing a job and be isolated from the other person. Dad might be plowing the field or seeding the wheat field or, or whatever it is. I might be uh, feeding the cattle because I, I grew up on a cattle ranch and a wheat farm. And mom might be tending to the garden or something along those lines. So we may have all been, but we weren't there with one another at the time. So I didn't grow up around a lot of people. So for me, social isolation isn't a huge stretch. I, I can, <laughs> I can survive fine without seeing people because people usually tick me off more often than not. So uh, <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> I mean, you know what? That's crazy. You mentioned that because I'm like, yeah, I can, <clears throat> I can hang out alone at least for a while. And, and so, you know, I've, I've, I, I just the other day I was on a, a zoom call with a couple of my good friends that broadcast in the, in the big sky conference, Mitch Stroman is at Northern Arizona and Riley mm -hmm. Corcoran is at Montana. And we want to do more of those. Uh, so once a week uh, we're doing this lunch and learn Facebook live deal for, for Eastern Washington athletics. And so I'm seeing people and, and chatting with people there. Uh, I still go to the grocery store once a week and, and stock up. And so at least there are people you're, you're going someplace where there are other people. I'm usually trying to, support a restaurant at least once a week here in, in Spokane. And so I'll go someplace and, and get takeout. And, and, and uh, uh, so I still see, see people from time to time. Uh, my mother is still living. And so I'll go down and, and, uh, but she's in a, an adult care home. So they're not allowing visitors, but she's got a window to the outside. So I can go stand outside her window and talk uh, to her over the cell phone and, <laughs> and uh, she can see me and I can see her and, and that, helps her out probably more than it helps me out just being able to see 
uh, somebody else because she's really isolated there and, mm-hmm. and she can't go out and go to the grocery store and, and she doesn't know how to operate a computer and do a Zoom call or, you know, mm-hmm. do what we're doing here today. And, and so that makes it, uh, so I do get some people, yes, I would like to be able, you know, where our golf courses are locked down, our fishing is locked down here. You can't do any of that in the state of Washington right now. And so it would be nice to go play around to golf or something along those lines with, with some friends, but that's not possible <coughs> at this point. And, and sooner or later it will be. And when that happens, a lot of people will be happy. So you heard about the technology of Zoom. What were your thoughts? I get confused very easily with technology. I know what I need to know and uh, I'm okay with that, uh, whether it's with an editing program or or whether it's with the internet. Um, But I'm not an overly technical person. And so, yeah, the whole Zoom thing or or any of the other, uh, uh, we use something different for for the lunch and learn because it just works better. Uh, for for Eastern's purpose, um, I, uh, with the woman that I'm dating, we do a Google Chat thing. So, uh, we, you know, we I, so I'm getting more comfortable with these things. I never had done the FaceTime or any of that type of stuff, uh, you know, before this happened. And so I'm slowly but surely gathering some kind of uh, uh, of aptitude with these uh, these social. Uh, programs here on the computer and yes let's not forget twitter (laughs) (laughs) well twitter and facebook are a place that i you know i'm on them but man alive it's 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 tough to to not get aggravated uh going through all that stuff at this point so when did you first start getting on twitter did somebody drag you kicking and screaming and say oh i created you an account use it Pretty much. Um, I got into Facebook at 2008 when I was working at a radio station here in Spokane. They said, you've got to get on. And so I did that. And then it was Eastern, uh, Eastern Washington's athletic department in uh, whatever year, 2011, 2012, whatever year it was, they, they said, you need, a, you need an account and you need to be able to you know, tweet stuff out and, and, and blah, blah, blah. So that's when I started doing stuff. And, and then uh, when I started doing things, so initially it was my Twitter was Larry Weir EWU. But then when I started tweeting other things, EWU made me take that off. Uh, you know, and I don't do political stuff and, and, and only, you know, a lot of stuff along those lines, but I might be, you know, uh, tweeting out for the spokesman review, which is the entity, the newspaper in Spokane, uh, for which I do the podcast that I do on a daily basis. And, and, and so they said, you got to get your EW off. So now it's just Larry Ware PBP for play by play. But yeah, it much both, yeah, both my, both my social, I don't do Instagram. I don't do Snapchat. I don't, I do don't either. Don't, I mean, you're not the only one that doesn't cause I, you know, I know everybody's using IG nowadays and Snapchat and Periscope and I'm like, if I, if I if, if, if I can just figure out how to use Facebook and Twitter and my email, I feel like I'm doing okay. <laughs> That's pretty much where I'm at. And I'm not very active on Facebook anymore, uh, posting stuff. Uh, and I've been really close to dropping that on a number of occasions, but I have a lot of photos there that I want to, you know, but I suppose I can get the hard drive and or get the flash, whatever it is. And download flash drive, some of that stuff. Drive. Yeah. 
and put it on, but I haven't gotten to that point yet. So maybe sooner or later I will and, and get off the Facebook entirely. Twitter, I find somewhat useful. Uh, it's a little bit more of a news. Um, yeah. You know, so, that's what I pretty much use it for. for yeah. If you, you know. follow the right people, you can get the breaking news of <clears throat> transfers. So and so is transferring from this place or that place. Or oh, yeah. That's the latest from NCAA or whatever it is. So if you follow the right people, you can. I, I can tend to not be, I, I don't follow any news sites other than Spokesman Review uh, on Twitter just because I just, I don't want to be inundated with everybody's opinion on, on what's happening in the world these days. But I like to know what's happening in the world. I just go to different websites for that. I go to AP News and to Reuters and to places like that, my local newspaper, and I try to stay away from the, <laughs> from the 24-hour news channels and Thank the opinion-based stuff. What is your game prep like usually for like <clears throat> a game week? And then also like how much you tweet out from the game site? Like you do like a view from the booth or something like that? Or I do a little bit pregame. Uh, once the game starts, I do very little. I have a hard time with, you know, trying to balance, I'm, I'm a slow tweeter, probably a slow, you know, a thumb typer. And so by the time I get a tweet typed, it's, you know, it's time to get rolling again. And I don't get a second to take a glass of water or, or a, a drink of water or take a second to, you know, to take a breath or to get the headset off my ears or, or whatever the case may be. So I don't do a whole lot within the game. Uh, I, maybe a little bit more basketball than football, uh, but not, I might tweet out a halftime stats. Uh, deal or, or something along those lines uh, but I don't tweet a whole lot in the game I tweet before the game on two or three occasions uh, but that's about all I do um, uh, Twitter wise within the game and as far as game prep goes uh, it's a fairly involved process as it is for most guys I think that, that do this job uh, I try as little as possible to have to refer to a roster um, once in a while, you'll get surprised by somebody that's out there that you're, you know, haven't prepared for. But I like to make it to where I, you know, if number 22 makes the tackle on special teams and that's all he is, he might be a third team safety or, or whatever along those lines. I still know who that guy is, even for right. the, you know, for my team and for the, uh, for the opponent. I try to, to have 50 or 60 names, all the guys that I think that are going to be on the, the travel roster with the exception of the backup offensive linemen. I don't care too much about the backup offensive linemen because they're not probably going to do anything except maybe Unless recover a fumble or something along those lines. <clears throat> Unless the game is totally out of hand and the coaches decide to take the starters out. Yeah, but even then, they're not really doing any. You know, they're not. They don't. They're, they don't have the football in their hands. They're not right. running the ball. They're not catching a pass. They're, they're not throwing it. Yeah, they're not throwing it. They're not tackling somebody uh, unless there's a turnover and they do make a tackle, or unless they recover a fumble, something along those lines. So, right. you know, in those cases, I, I can you know look down fairly quickly and figure out you know who number sixty-eight is or, or whatever the case is. But I try to have all the people that I think are going to be on special teams, making tackles, playing backups in the secondary, wide receiver try to get down to a third and a fourth or a fifth running back, depending on, you know, how many running backs a team uses. Um, so I'm, I'm going through trying to memorize all those people. And then you just want your game notes, you know, where does this person rank uh, in the conference or nationally in, in this statistic or that statistic and, you know, who's all conference, who's all American, who's a returning starter, 
who's got an interesting, you know, note in their background, uh, you know, who was injured and sat out, who's got a, you know, whatever it might be. And then so then I note all that as well. And I do things differently as far as spotting boards go um, than most people. Nobody, you know, I learned to do this through listening to people like Bob Robertson and, and listening to people like uh, Pete Gross, who was the Seattle Seahawk announcer and Bob Blackburn, who was the first uh, Seattle uh, the supersonic announcer and, and people along those lines. I didn't get, I didn't go to college. I didn't consult anybody. And so I knew nothing about spotting boards until I saw somebody in 1991 with Eastern with a spotting board uh, for another school. As you go and you introduce yourself, whatever it is, and they've got these spotting boards there. Mm-hmm. So I had never learned how to make out a spotting board and never gotten comfortable with. So I tried the spotting board at one point in time and it just was left-handed to me. I, I prefer to have things in my own little form. And so that's how I do it. I don't do, I don't make out the spotting board, but I find the depth chart. I print that out in a, in a manner that I've become comfortable to using it. A lot of times in high school, you didn't even know, I mean, this was before the internet. And, and so, you know, when I was doing high school games in the 1980s, a lot of times I wouldn't have a roster until you walk in the, 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 the stadium. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and even then the rosters weren't necessarily right by that point, if you're October or November, they may have brought some JV kids up. They may have had some kids quit the team, whatever the case may be. So the roster may not even be right at that point. So there were high school games where you would say number 22 is so-and-so, but it was actually somebody else because nobody bothered to update the roster and, and you didn't know. And if it was 22 on another team, Nobody cared, and if it was 22 on their team, they had no way of telling you <laughs> who it was, so people just had to live with it. So, um, you know, I never learned to use – so I kind of do my own system, and it works for me, but it doesn't necessarily work for anybody else. So I always try to tell young broadcasters <coughs> to find what is comfortable for them, uh, you know, talk to – be very – I was not very forward – Plus, I didn't go to college, so it's not as though I was a student broadcaster someplace and could go talk with the colleges, you know, with the, with the broadcasters and, and so forth. I, I went to work in radio as basically, you know, I, did, I, went, I went to community college, I should say that. I did not graduate from a four-year institution oh, okay. uh, because I basically went straight from, from broadcasting uh, the games in Toppenish. I was enrolled at Eastern Washington University in the fall of 1983 and got a full-time job in Yakima, Washington before that quarter was over. So I didn't, I wasn't in a situation where I was seeing broadcasters, talking to broadcasters, interacting with broadcasters other than whoever you interacted with at the high school level. And most of them didn't have a clue either. Uh, And I didn't have a clue as to, you know, the boards and, and that kind of stuff. So find your, you know, I've always told guys, find whatever works best for you and roll with it. So when you have young broadcasters or people that think they want to be future broadcasters, what are your do's and don'ts to them? And what are you listening for when you get a link to actually listen to their stuff? Uh, I try to, you know, because so many, it, it, even the radio industry has become a visual medium anymore in that a lot of today's young broadcasters grew up watching games on TV. They didn't grow up listening to them on the radio. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid in the, in the late sixties, early seventies, mid seventies, late seventies, it was That's all, before all cable, yeah, it was all before cable TV. 
Mm-hmm. So radio is how you followed your, your team's games because you had, for baseball, you had the NBC game of the week that aired on Saturdays. And that's the only baseball game you had until it came, you know, playoff and World Series time. And a lot of times those games were in the afternoon when kids were at school, so I didn't get a chance to watch those anyway. Right. Uh, there wasn't a regular NBA contract. I grew up out in the Thule's. And we had the Seattle Supersonics, so maybe they had some games on TV in Seattle, but they weren't on TV in Spokane. And even then, when I was a real young kid, we got two television stations. We got the ABC affiliate out of Spokane and the NBC affiliate out of Spokane. So I only got the AFC football games because the NFC games were on CBS, so I couldn't watch those. And, you know, there was no NBA, there was no hockey on TV. You got the college football game or games of the week on ABC, uh, but you didn't get a lot of college basketball. And so I grew up, if I wanted to, to follow a game, I had to listen to it on the radio. And I had described that I was the eyes for the people um, that couldn't see the game. But now today's announcers are growing up watching on TV and they're not listening as much to guys on the radio. And so what I tell guys is listen to as much radio as you can listen to. Watch the game on TV, but find the game on the radio so that you can hear how people are describing what you're watching. And sometimes you can't get that to match up. But if you can get that to match up, the audio to what you're watching on TV, do it that way. Try to get the description part of it from the guy doing the radio, although even that these days is getting harder to find somebody who is as descriptive as the guys were, you know, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and even in the 80s because those guys doing games in the 80s were the guys listening in the 50s and 60s and 70s to the people doing it, so they learned how to do it. And, uh, and, and But listen to as many people as possible and be as descriptive as you possibly can be because – if you're talking to somebody on the radio, in all likelihood, they are driving anymore and they're not able to see what's happening. And they want to be able to see in their mind's eye what is going on. Uh, even people at home anymore, a lot of times they can watch the game over a computer, if nothing else. Uh, but maybe they want to listen to your broadcast with what they see on the computer. But still, they, are, they may be seeing it, but there are still listeners out there that aren't seeing it. So you have to be as descriptive as you possibly can. And when I get somebody's tape, that's what I'm listening for. I'm listening for how descriptive they are. I want to know what they're, you know, whether I can see, if I close my eyes, can I see that game in my, in my mind's eye? And then if I can't, helping them with ways to get them to where they can be more descriptive and not always using the same verbiage. You can't always say pass you know, in basketball, so-and-so passes it to this guy and he passes it to that guy and he passes it to another guy. You've got to find different language there to describe those passes. And, you know, it could be, uh, you know, he feeds or he throws or he tosses or he uh, dumps it inside or he, whatever the case may be, you've got to find other words to describe that rather than the same thing time after time after time. And that's what you should also listen to yourself for uh, to see whether you're falling into crutches or falling into patterns or something along those lines. Early in my career, I said, you know, he brings it up with a right-hand dribble a lot. And I was trying to be descriptive, but that's what I was saying was right-hand dribble, right-hand dribble, right-hand dribble. I had to find other ways to describe what was happening here. 
Uh, so you just say he's, you know, he's controlling it from the top of the key, you're controlling the ball, whatever it is. Um, or the great Bill King, the, uh, the, the Golden State Warrior, Oakland A, Oakland Raider uh, broadcaster, he'd describe it as, you know, he's got the ball on a, on a string or he yo-yos the dribble or something along those lines to where, okay, you can see that, okay, if you have your, your mind thinking of the yo-yo and the yo-yo, you're just going up and down, that's what he's doing with the ball. So there are ways that you can go to describe things that isn't the same thing time after time after time after time. And so listen to as many people as you can. Uh, I was a huge product of Bob Robertson because he's the guy that I listened to more than anybody else through the radio. But over time, I got to listen more to Pete Gross doing Seahawk games. And so I molded some of what he was doing in. I heard Bob Rondo doing some University of Washington games so I could mm -hmm. take a little bit of Rondo with a little bit of Gross and a little bit of Robertson and a little bit of me as I started getting more experience in. And that kind of got my style going there. And so I started listening to other people doing basketball, like the Bill Kings of the world and, and other folks. And then you'd listen to Dave Niehaus, who was a longtime Mariners broadcaster, mm -hmm. or Ken Wilson or Rick Riz, who worked with him uh, on the radio. And then you listen to, uh, you know, other people like Harry Carey or whoever it might happen to be. And you kind of meld those together and, and that kind of ends up becoming your style. And so... I try to tell people to, to listen to as many people as they can and figure it out. Try to get, uh, you know, add to your personality, add your own style, what works for you to what's working for some of these other people and, and do the best you can to, to develop your own thing. How much do you listen back to your stuff? Not as much now as I used to in the old days. Um, I've never liked listening to myself because I tend to, to pick myself apart and be too hard on myself. Uh, and, and so I've kind of figured out at the age of 58, and I'm going to be 59 soon, uh, that I will listen to bits and pieces. But if I start getting too difficult to my, on myself, um, then I, I will back off and, and not listen. Um, but I try now more than anything to probably try to figure out, okay, are you using something as a crutch? Is a phrase coming in? And are you using it too much? Uh, you know, with football, it could be a, some term for tackling or, or something along those lines. So I try to listen more for that and not so much. I, I've probably gotten as, as good as I'm going to get in this business. And now it's just a matter of uh, trying to maintain what I have mentally, voice-wise, uh, eyes-wise, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm now mainly listening more for verbiage, are there things that I can use? I'll listen to other guys and see it. I'll listen to other guys more than I listen to myself because I, I want to know other words to describe something, other things that I could use to be descriptive. Uh, there was a guy named Jay Sanderson who's is a good friend of mine who was doing Montana State games. And so I'd listen to Jay from time to time because he'd have a way of some phrase at the start of his broadcast that would be a nice descriptive term. So he would always, uh, you know, at the kickoff, have the kicker kicking the receiver back at the goal line near the black end zone with, you know, whatever the, 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 the if he's at Eastern Washington, near the black end zone with the Eastern in print in white trimmed in red. 
So you can kind of see that, okay, that's, in your, that's, that's a good thing you can use for a, something else to describe that makes it, you know, you, so that somebody can see that it's a sunny day and there's a few clouds in the sky or it's overcast or it's raining or it's snowing or whatever it is, but just something else to describe how, you know, what's happening so that people can see things better uh, in their mind. Uh, so I'll listen to other guys try to pick up some other phrases that I might be able to incorporate. That sounds good. Okay, fine. I can use that. Uh, and then just trying to keep myself from getting crutches. Uh, and that all came from being a disc jockey back in the day. You didn't always want to say the time the same way. Uh, you wanted to be conversational with how you did things as a, a disc jockey. And so that I kind of took some of that over into the, into the sports casting business as well. So don't be too repetitive with phrases, with, uh, with something, if, if it's happening with, with, you know, you can't always say he shoots all the time in basketball. So maybe he fires a three-pointer or he, you know, does what, you know, a, a teardrop jumper in the lane or whatever it might be. Try not to, to make it so that you're describing the, the same shot the same way or the same pass the same way all the time. So that's what I'm listening to myself for more these days. And you said you do some TV work. Do you feel like sometimes you fall in that, you know, radio TV trap? And how do you keep yourself sharp depending on what medium you're working on? The TV thing um, is the, the thing that's most difficult for me in TV is not because in radio, you're used to describing the play. Well, on TV, the people can see they don't want you talking that much over what they're seeing. You've got to, you've got to say different things when you, when you speak. I don't have to be, you know, third and 12 ball on the right hash mark at their own 27 or something because people can see a lot of that. I might have to, you know, whether it's the graphic on the TV is telling them that or, uh, you know, they can just tell that, okay, they're at the 27 yard line or whatever the case may be. So for me, less on TV is more. So for me, it's really checking yourself back and trying to set up the analyst so that he can explain why things happened. Uh, the analyst for me is more important on TV than the play-by-play -play guy. The play-by-play -play guy is more important on radio because you need to be able to see what happened before you know why it happened or before you need to know why it, it happened. Being a color guy for me is more difficult on radio because you have to say, what happened in a much shorter time. You can't keep on with your explanation into uh, the next play getting underway because you've got to be out of that at that point by radio. You need to be out of it by radio by the time the teams break the huddle at the very least. So if there is a huddle by the time they address the line of scrimmage at the very least. So uh, for me, the hard part is editing myself on television so that I'm not talking too much uh, and then the other thing is to try to set up the analyst so that they can explain things and where you're not asking them some impossible question that they can't possibly answer. I know I kept you longer than 3.15 Central Time, and I know I could handle <laughs> some other stuff, but you know how when you start getting a good rhythm and a flow of a conversation, you don't want to actually stop it right in the middle. Absolutely. This has been a blast. Hopefully we can do it again, and hopefully next time we have another one of these, we're actually talking about games. Absolutely. Hopefully. I'm hoping I'm hoping that happens. And anytime, Luther, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. And anytime you need me, uh, feel free to reach out. It's been my pleasure. Well, thank you for the time.